This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The future of more than 17,000 Coloradans is up in the air. They're young immigrants who have what's known as DACA, a temporary reprieve from being deported. And next week could be a deciding moment for them. Alejandro Fuentes is one of these young immigrants in Colorado, and he works with others who go to the Denver school where he teaches. And Alejandro, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let's fill people in on part of your story. You were born in Chile and came here with your mom when you were four. Why did your mom decide to move to the U.S.? I think that the reason why my mom ended up moving is because she grew up uh, under the Pinochet regime. And if we don't know much about Pinochet, he was a a brutal dictator who, um, while she was in high school, she observed that as college students tried to stand up against uh, the injustices that he stood for, he literally went from campus to campus and uh, killed college students who did not support what he stood for. And I suppose she thought this would give you an opportunity to live in a safer, more stable country. Yeah, Congress has to vote next week on a spending bill. If they don't, it could mean a government shutdown. But there's an effort to include some kind of help for immigrants in the bill. Advocates, including some in Congress, see the bill as a way to get leverage for DACA recipients. And they know Republicans will want to get the spending bill done. So they're willing to hold back their support until there's a bill to protect the dreamers. Are you hopeful in this moment that a deal will get done? If I'm being honest with myself, I feel like uh, because uh, the system has sort of let us down before, I'm not very hopeful. But I I mean, I, I don't think it's actually going to pass, but I'm hopeful that enough minds have changed in the last few months that it will have some sort of impact Hundreds of thousands of immigrants around the country got this temporary protection from deportation. The program was set up by President Obama, and President Trump has decided to end the program in March. But he also wants Congress to decide whether to pass a law formalizing some sort of protection or path to legal residency for people like you. What does it feel like to be talked about in this kind of abstract political way? The best analogy that I can give is that I feel like we are chess pieces in this sort of political game. To a certain degree, it feels very dehumanizing because they are not allowing us to live or necessarily give us these opportunities unless something else that President Trump wants and other Republican individuals want, specifically the finances that will go towards building this border wall and also putting more uh, ICE forces on the ground. Um, It's something that I don't necessarily feel very comfortable with because the thought of me getting some form of, of opportunity or getting some sort of pathway towards residency or citizenship would also mean that my parents would, to a certain degree, their their lives would be put at risk uh, of deportation as well. You're talking about the possibility of a deal where lawmakers agree to more border security measures in exchange for protecting the Dreamers. A deal like that one comes up a lot and may be the most likely option. 
Your parents are undocumented. They live in California, and they're the type of people the government would have more resources to track down and deport. How would you feel about that? I mean, I would be really, really happy at the idea that this country that I've grown up in would finally grant me the opportunity to be a resident or a citizen. And that's not something that I've ever had before. But I would be really worried about what that would mean for my parents and whether or not they would be able to uh, live a life that would basically allow them to do the work that they need to do in order to provide for themselves and for my little sister and actually my brand new niece. Um, my parents are taking care of her, even though she's a U.S. citizen, they are the ones who are providing for her need right now. So I don't know. I think it would just, it would be a very contradictory feeling within my own heart about whether or not this was good news or bad news. How much do you talk about this stuff with your parents? I talk about it whenever I see them. Uh, my mom is actually a little bit afraid to talk about it over the phone because she's afraid that somebody's always listening. <laughs> but it is definitely a, a huge topic of conversation. And the the crazy thing about it is that if it was up to her, she would support a DREAM Act no matter what that would entail. Mm. She would be willing to sacrifice her own security and like the the higher risk of deportation if it meant that I would be granted an opportunity to live out my life peacefully here in America. You plan to see your mother at Christmas. Is this something you'll be talking about then? Absolutely. I actually haven't seen my mom in about a year and a half or so. And so this Christmas, I'm going to be spending about a week with my family and I imagine that amongst all the delicious food and the gift giving, um, the conversation about what have to be next steps will also be a topic of conversation. We mentioned that your mom is from Chile, as are you. Your stepdad, who you consider your dad, is from Mexico. For some immigrants from Mexico and other Central American countries, going back means living amidst violence, gang issues. Chile doesn't seem to have those same problems. So what does your mom say about the possibility of going back to Chile? My mom would love to go back to Chile. My my mom's father is currently in a hospital. She's afraid that he's going to end up dying before he she can say her final goodbyes. But what she fears is going back to Chile, a country that she hasn't seen in 24 years, and not being able to come back to the United States, the place where she raised me, the place where my little sister was born and raised, the place where she met her husband, the place where she's endured a lot of hardships, but also has a community here. And Despite what Chile might have to offer, this is now her home. Did your mom ever consider going through the legal process to become a U.S. citizen? Yes. In fact, when she applied while she was in Chile, she was aiming to get uh, a more permanent visa, but only got that uh, visitor's visa, that temporary visa that allows you to travel back and forth. She ended up coming here and overstaying hers uh, and that's how we became undocumented. 
but she uh, applied to the process of trying to get us to become residents or citizens like two or three times, actually. But point is, it fell through um, due to the instability of of our undocumented status. We moved homes a lot. And in that movement, we missed our chance to finish off the process. And if you don't have the right resources and don't have the right people in your corner, it's very easy to miss the steps necessary in order to become a resident. What do you think about that philosophical question of whether someone who came to this country illegally in the eyes of U.S. law should face consequences? Uh, I feel like my answer to that would be, what would we say about all the individuals who came over a long time ago and decided to take the land away from the natives? Should we therefore be evicting ourselves as Americans because these lands don't necessarily belong to us? I think everybody ends up making choices that are the best choices for them at the time. And as an undocumented individual, I have managed to sort of <laughs> defeat almost every statistic that was pointed against me. And I am now sort of like a middle class or lower middle class. I don't know what it is based off of an educator's paycheck, but but an educator, something that I never thought it would happen considering the fact that all I saw my dad do was struggle in construction and that's exactly what I thought I was going to have to do. I think that it was the right choice for her and it was certainly the right choice for me. And I'm just hoping that people will be able to see that despite what choices people make, it's the best next choice to whatever they have. We mentioned that you teach in Denver Public Schools, and you told my colleague Jenny Brundine last year after the presidential election that students in your school were afraid of what would happen. How have you seen that change over the year, or does it feel the same way it did back then? At the onset of Trump's presidency, I had quite a few families who just ended up self-deporting and, mm -hmm. and leaving the school, leaving the U.S. because they feared the idea of being persecuted. I feel like the immigrant community um, and students who have immigrant parents are always under that constant stress and they either choose to ignore it or it overwhelms them. And so they don't always know how to cope with it. And it, it's always going to depend on the day whether they we have a day where these students are able to just be students who are focused on their academics or if there's going to be something else that takes precedence in their life due to the stresses that they're undergoing at home. Alejandro, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Alejandro Fuentes teaches math at Kip Northeast Denver Middle School. We talked about his status as a dreamer and some politicians' plans to try in the next week to make a deal to allow immigrants like him to stay in the U.S. Mm -hmm. 
They're not your typical holiday stories. A robot that wants to be a rocket, a Christmas ghost who takes the shape of a hippie. Just two of the characters in a new collection of short stories from science fiction writer Connie Willis. It's called A Lot Like Christmas. Willis lives in Greeley and has racked up the biggest awards in sci-fi, the Hugo and the Nebula. She spoke with Ryan Warner in front of a live audience at Colorado State University. Connie, welcome. Hi. It's nice to be here. Why is sci-fi a good genre to explore Christmas with? Well, it's a genre that always was involved in Christmas. The most famous Christmas story of all is Dickens' Christmas Carol, which is in fact a ghost story. And we in science fiction like to claim you know, ghost stories as part of our genre. <laughs> Anything that involves something that's out of the ordinary, something that doesn't happen in the real world. Christmas is such an interesting holiday because it's past and present and future, just like Dickens said. So Christmas future is something that's always, you know, fascinated me. The idea of what, what will, we, we, will we be doing 20 years out, 30 years out, 40 years out. You can imagine that we would come up with even sillier ways to celebrate the season and uh, <laughs> even more obnoxious ways probably. One of my stories is about a woman who works as a a Christmas designer because people have gone from simply decorating their trees and decorating their houses to having to have a theme and so they are constantly trying to find new and better themes and they've clearly gone through all of the things like Courier and Ives and Dickens and, and the past and traditional Christmases and are now working on things like Oyster Christmas and other lovely Christmas-related things. And so I got to deal with some of the insanity that we currently have and then just move it up a notch by putting it in the future. Right. What will Christmas insanity, Christmas buzz look like a decade from now? Right. It also strikes me that sci-fi in many ways is about imagining sometimes a pretty bleak future, but often a better future. Uh, And Christmas is a time of year when I think we try to imagine that the year ahead might be a good one. Might so, be better, right. Yeah, maybe, maybe right. there's an aspirational connection, too. Well, I think that's true, and I, th- I think that Christmas is a, it's a very odd holiday because it's this sort of bizarre conglomerate holiday. holiday. It's partly a religious holiday, partly a historical holiday, partly a family holiday, partly a dysfunctional family holiday, <laughs> <laughs> partly a commercial holiday, you know, with the endless shopping and the, and, you know, and then people tack onto it all sorts of odd traditions that have nothing really to do with the holiday itself. But it's also a time of year when, as Dickens, who's always, always the best, says people learn to be a child again, and they learn to get their their values in order and stop thinking so much about money grubbing and trying to get and spend and start thinking about what really matters. And I think it's an ideal time then for all of us to sort of forget our usual nastiness and obnoxiousness and try to actually be better people. Although we, we usually behave worse at Christmas than any other time, so <laughs> oh, videos, maybe that's not true. <laughs> videos of people fighting over toasters. Oh, fighting over like toasters that. and behaving badly in line at the post office. There are a lot of references, though, to classic holiday films in your collection, A Lot Like Christmas. Your favorite Christmas film, I understand, is the original 1947 version of Miracle on 34th Street. Yes, in black and white. In black and white. It's the story of a man hired to fill in as Santa Claus for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Except he claims he is the real Santa Claus. Would you please tell her that you're not really Santa Claus? 
that there actually is no such person. Well, I'm sorry to disagree with you, Mrs. Walker, but not only is there such a person, but here I am to prove it. No, no, no. You misunderstand. I want you to tell her the truth. Uh, what's your name? Chris Kringle. I'll bet you're in the first grade. Second. I mean your real name. That is my real name. Second grade? It's a progressive school. Oh, it's a progressive school. Eventually, there's a trial to determine if he's really Chris Kringle. Right. And you do call this the best Christmas movie ever made. Yes. An honor that you do not think should go to It's a Wonderful Life (laughs) starring Jimmy Stewart. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, Stewart! Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful Billy alone! Now, we'll talk more about your book in a bit, but Connie Willis, you're a celebrated writer, and I want to know, from your vantage point, what makes Miracle on 34th Street the better Christmas movie? Okay, I love both movies, actually, and I have really nothing against uh, It's a Wonderful Life, except that when I wrote my story, Miracle, every time I turned on the television, It's a Wonderful Life was on. And it turns out that that's not its fault. It is because, for some reason, it did not go under copyright like other movies. It slid through somehow. And so it's free, so that's why they show it 24-7 all the time. And in in your story, in this collection, Miracle, it is also in the background all the time time. on television. Who who knew that was about rights, TV rights? Right, it's about TV rights. But It's a Wonderful Life is a, a really good movie, but it's all dependent on people behaving well which I don't think is ever a given, even at Christmas time. On the other hand, Miracle on 34th Street, everybody's behaving very badly. They're behaving in their own best interest. And so you think it's more realistic? It's much more realistic. And then somehow all these people acting like they normally act bring about this miracle, which makes you feel like something bigger is behind it and that maybe Santa Claus really does exist. And mm. so to me, it's an ironic movie, which puts anything ironic, of course, I put way higher than anything that's not. You don't Uh, like sappy. I hate sappy. I despise sappy. And I try really hard to write Christmas stories that are not sappy. Well, both Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life play a prominent role in your story, Miracle. The main character, Lauren, is an office worker, and she is stressed about gift shopping. She gets a visit from a spirit who appears to be a hippie. He's wearing a Save the Whales t-shirt. Will you read an excerpt for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, He just shows up at her door, and he tells her that he's the spirit of Christmas present. And Drawing on your love of Dickens. Drawing on my love of Dickens, yes. And he says, yes, what is it, she asked. I'm here to give you a Christmas present, he said. Thank you, I'm not interested in whatever you're selling, she said, and shut the door. He knocked again immediately. I'm not selling anything, he said through the door. Really? I don't have time for this, she thought, but she opened the door again. I'm not a sales guy, he said. Have you ever heard of the Maharishi Ram Das? A religious nut, she thought. I don't have time to talk to you, she started to say. I'm late for work, and then remembered that you weren't supposed to tell strangers your apartment was going to be empty. I'm very busy, she said, and shut the door more firmly this time. The knocking commenced again, but she ignored it. She started into the bedroom with a shopping bag, came back, and pushed the deadbolt across and put the chain on, and then went in to hang up her dress. The young man was sitting on the couch, messing with her TV remote. So what do you want for Christmas? A yacht? A pony? He punched buttons on the remote, frowning. A new TV? 
How did you get in here? Lauren said squeakily. She looked at the door. The deadbolt and chain were still on. I'm a spirit, he said, putting the remote down. The TV suddenly blared on. The spirit of Christmas present. Oh, Lauren said, edging toward the phone, like in a Christmas carol. No, he said, flipping through the channels. She looked at the remote. It was still on the coffee table. Not Christmas present. Christmas present. You know, Barbie dolls, ugly ties, cheese logs, the stuff people give you for Christmas. Ah, the ghost of Christmas present is the ghost of Christmas gifts. Yes. And he is offering her her heart's desire. Yes. He's sort of like a genie saying you can have whatever you want. Right. Where did the idea for this story come from? Well, Other than Dickens, I suppose. Well, Dickens, of course. And then watching, watching It's a Wonderful Life everywhere and all the time, one entire Christmas. And thinking about how do you know what your heart's desire is? And sometimes it's standing right in front of you and you don't recognize it and all those things. But also because I had been to the Sharper Image, which I guess they, don't, they have a catalog still, but they don't have stores anymore. But the, then, the Sharper Image are these stores or were these stores that had the oddest things for sale, vibrating chairs and automatic tie racks. And, right. And, and everything was a massager too. It was like exactly. half toothbrush, half back massager. Right. And very upscale and all things that no one needs at all for Christmas. And this story became about the things you need versus the things you want and the things that people give you. Like you really don't need a giant platinum coin changer for Christmas. What you really need is a stapler at work that people won't steal from you. So, um, so it became an exercise in that and a little bit of romance and all kinds of things. What do you want for Christmas, Connie Willis, if you could have anything? What do I want for Christmas? Oh, gosh. You can have anything. I would want my grandmother there at Christmas to say, as she always said every Christmas, we have too many presents. There are too many presents here. No one should get this many presents. She said it every single year, and now she's not here to say it, and I wish she was back. And since I'm a writer, that's almost possible. That she could come back? That she could come back. Have and you sit written in front that story? Have I haven't written... written that story yet, but I've written lots of stories about, about the past and about loss and about, about the sad side of Christmas, because Christmas is very much about memory, I think. And we're always thinking back to the Christmases of our childhood, um, earlier Christmases, the best present we ever got. Um, The best present I ever got was I had asked for, this was in my obnoxious phase, I had asked for a white Bible with my name embossed on it in gold. Truly obnoxious person. and um, That sounds like a lovely thing to ask (laughs) for. Well, it's what I thought I wanted. And I got instead... A pair of shoe roller skates, you know, the white roller skates with the pom-poms. And this was a gift so far out of my imagining. It was not the kind of thing that, you know, people in our social class didn't, you would never ask for it for Christmas because it was something only, you know, professional skaters and rich people had. And I suddenly had this pair of white shoe skates with pom-poms, and I was the happiest person alive. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Greeley science fiction writer Connie Willis, winner of the Nebula and Hugo Awards. Those are the Oscars of sci-fi writing. And her new holiday collection is called A Lot Like Christmas. How often do you look to other Christmas stories when writing your own? And maybe more generally, when you're writing sci-fi, Connie Willis, how often do you look to other stories? Um... Well, that depends. I, in, in my own regular writing, 
I am a huge history person. I love and adore history, particularly the history of World War II, um, and always try to have the real history, the actual facts, because I don't, I don't really like alternative histories where people just sort of make up large portions of what's going on. Um, if there's history in my books, it's real. It's things that really happened, because I always think history is way more bizarre and interesting than anything I could make up. So mm. The I real would... sci-fi is... <laughs> Uh, human history. <laughs> it is. It is human history, and I also adore the movies. Um, I have a new book coming out that's a collection of three novel novelettes that I wrote before. One of them is called Remake, and it's about a a guy working in a futuristic Hollywood where there are no human actors left at all, um, and there's a young woman who wants to dance in the movies. A ridiculous idea because there are no people in the movies anymore. So I drew heavily on my love of the movies for that. You talked there about robots replacing actors in films, and that makes me think of another story in your collection, A Lot Like Christmas, called All About Emily. And this has parallels to the 1951 drama All About Eve, starring Betty Davis. I also think it was Marilyn Monroe's first film. Marilyn Monroe's first film. And the storyline is that a robot wishes to become a performer. Right. In this case, a rockette. Yes. And it's around uh, Christmas time, around the holidays. And she has met a Broadway actress named Claire Haviland, who is sort of the grand dame of New York theater. And I'm fascinated by this idea of the potential of robots taking jobs. Now, that's happened in some industries, of right. course. And it's happening now, and people are very nervous about it. Indeed, so. I think it influenced this election right, to a great degree. Yes. Uh, but the idea of robots taking over performance jobs is something else as well. And I suppose there's CGI and the idea of animation taking human roles. Tell us more about this story all about Emily. Who is Emily? Okay, so Emily is, in fact, uh, an android who's, who's been designed to be very, look very human. And the people who are, are squiring Emily, the android around town, make the mistake of taking her to Radio City Music Hall as part of a number of things that they're doing, the Macy's Parade and all kinds of things. Kind of a press tour, a of, press this, tour. of this impressive android <laughs> right. who looks to be a young woman, but who has an almost encyclopedic knowledge of right. theater. Right, and is, you know, is, can cry, can do all these, she looks very human. But they take her to Radio City Music Hall and she sees the Rockettes Christmas show. And I actually got this idea for this story when I was at the Rockettes Christmas show. At Radio City Music Hall. At Radio City Music Hall. And I was sitting there, and they were doing their tin soldier routine. I don't know if you've ever seen that, where the the soldiers line up, and they do a very rigid, regimental kind of dance. And I thought, gosh, they, they look like robots. And then I thought, you know, if I was a robot, this is what I would want to be, a a rocket. And the Rockettes are different from other performers in that they're judged on how much alike they can be. They're not judged on individuality or style or anything. They're judged on can they all kick to exactly the same height. So then I started doing research about the Rockettes, who I only knew as dancers, and discovered that they were amazing people and these amazing heroes in that the reason that they're at the Radio City Music Hall at all is because they saved the building from being destroyed in the 1970s. It was going to be bulldozed. Yes. And the Rockettes, uh, if I recall from the book, 
stood around it, encircled the building so that it couldn't be right. destroyed. Encircled the building, holding petitions so that people could sign and say that they didn't want the building torn down. And they did this in their leotards and fishnet stockings in the middle of winter. And it is Radio City Music Hall is now a fully restored Art Deco building on the National Register of Historic Landmarks, cannot ever be torn down, thanks to these amazing women. And so I'm always interested in unlikely heroes, people who you would never guess in a million years were the kind of people who would be heroes. And so that's what my story became about. And the robot in many ways becomes a reflection, a mirror to people of their own humanity. Right. Yeah. Exactly. More of the history here. You write that before coming to New York, the Rockettes had danced in St. Louis yes. as the Missouri Rockets. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> that in the days when they danced between movie showings, they had practically lived at Radio City Music Hall, sleeping on cots and eating at a special canteen set up for them. That in the open competition at the Paris Exposition, they had defeated the Russians and the corps de ballet of the Paris Opera. That's right. What's next from you, Connie Willis? Um, I'm working on a novel about Roswell, a comic novel. Uh, about Roswell, alien, New Mexico. Roswell and UFOs. With and its storied alien, alien history. Alien abduction. Yeah, my heroine goes to um, Roswell to be in the wedding of her nutty friend who is marrying a, a UFO crazy person and gets abducted. Greeley sci-fi writer Connie Willis speaking with us at Colorado State University in front of an audience of young journalists, and they had some great questions for her. So let's hear them. I'm Amanda Rybal. I'm a junior at Bryan High School in Brighton, Colorado. A while back on the Science Channel, they used to air a TV show called Prophets of Science Fiction, like Ray Bradbury and Isaac Agnemoth, where they talked about their books and how they seem to predict the future. Do you believe that your books somehow predict the future? Sometimes they have predicted things. When I wrote Remake, the closest we were to CGI was a, an ad of Fred Astaire dancing with the vacuum cleaner. And now, of course, we have endless you know, animation and body doubles and all the things that I, that I put in my book. My book was supposed to be sort of a cautionary tale, and instead all the bad parts of it came true. And I have had other things in my books that have, that have come true, although I don't believe that science fiction is primarily... Its job is not to predict the future. We're not, like, out there making predictions. Futurists. Right, futurists. What we're really trying to do is we're extrapolating the future. We're saying, if this goes on in this direction, here's where we will be in 20 years. Or if, if we don't stop doing this, we're going to end up here. Uh, if we don't fix climate change, deal with climate change, you know, then I'd write a story about you know, the world being inundated with, with hurricanes or turning into a burning desert. <laughs> oh, no, that's today, I guess. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, but even worse in 20 years. And you're held to account not by how many things you've predicted that turn out to be right, because science fiction writers frequently are dead wrong about their predictions, but more by how you have, have shown a light on the future and tried to illuminate something about the... Pr- Usually you're illuminating an issue about the present. My name is Connor Brees from Legend High School in Parker, Colorado. I'm a junior, and I was wondering, where do you start when you're writing a story? Like, do you start out um, in the middle? Do you start out at the end and work backwards, or do you start chronologically and go in order? Oh, that's such a great question, because um, I write 
all over the place. I take lots and lots of notes. Like, I'll get an idea for a story, and I'll start taking notes. And they're just in the form of, okay, here's a situation. This girl has gone forward to the future, and she's not supposed to be able to up till now. Everybody's only been able to go back in time, and she's gone forward. Why has she gone forward? Just notes like that. And then as I figure out things, I write more and more detailed notes. But when I'm starting the actual writing of chapters, I start with whatever I have. So, like, I don't know how the story exactly starts, but I know that two chapters in, when my heroine is abducted by the alien, how that, sto- how that goes. So I start writing that. And that might be in the middle of the, of the book, or it might end up at the end, or it might be right, the beginning. Right, but it's what I know how to write. A nugget. And I write it. And then I, as I write, I realize, oh, and then after this, this is what will happen next. And I also realize, oh, wait, to set this up, I'm going to have to have this in the chapter previous. And I take notes on that. I always have the end of a novel or the end of a story figured out before I start the actual physical writing of it. But most people, a lot of writers are really stuck by the feeling that they have to start with line one of chapter one, and they never get past that because they're stuck. I never, ever have written line one of chapter one. I'm Kendra Roden. I'm a sophomore at Fairview High School in Boulder. How do you keep yourself from falling into those, like, cliche oh, plots? Cliches. Oh, okay. The first idea that I have for a story is always really stupid. Really stupid. You know, it's either borrowed from somebody, and and you need to keep in mind that if you have seen something on television, that is like a third or fourth generation version of an original idea. So it's really a cliche. It's so far beyond cliche. You don't want to touch that at all. So I will think, let's see, how can I make that different? I had this great idea one time. I was watching a soap opera. And uh, on the soap opera, the person wasn't dead, but they thought he was. So they were having his funeral, and he came to his own funeral. And I thought, I love that story. That's a great story. And then I thought, well, of course you love that story because Tom Sawyer. It's in Tom Sawyer, you know. (laughs) And if Mark Twain did it, and now soap operas are doing it, which are even more cliched than the usual television show, you can't do that. So then I thought, but I really love that story. So what if you came, you were, everybody thought you were drowned, And you came to your own funeral, and you stood at the back and listened to all the things that people said about you, thinking you were dead. And then you revealed yourself to be alive. And then three days later, your body washed up on shore. And then I thought, oh, I think I can do that. So I always start out, I don't worry about the fact that my first idea is always stupid or cliched. I always just think, how can I make this different? How can I fix this? Connie, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Really sci-fi and fantasy writer Connie Willis speaking with my colleague Ryan Warner and high school students on the CSU campus. Willis's book is called A Lot Like Christmas. There's a list of her all-time favorite holiday stories, ones she didn't write, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Big game hunting is winding down in Colorado, and that means big business for taxidermists. Parts of harvested animals end up on dinner plates, but other parts are prepared, stuffed, and mounted for display. Daryl Powell lives in Grand Junction. He's been a taxidermist for nearly four decades. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Mounted animals like elk and moose are all over Colorado in places like hotel lobbies, sporting goods stores. Why do Coloradans like to put these animals on display? Well, it's just, it's the feel. You're in Colorado, the Rocky Mountains, uh, uh, people with these homes in the mountains. You, you got to decorate them. It's got to be Western. It's got to be Colorado. So you have to have that elk or moose head over your fireplace. <laughs> The word taxidermy comes from Greek words that translate to the arrangement of skin. It's an art that's been practiced for centuries. How is it different now from what it was hundreds of years ago? And I imagine that was, it's quite a different practice now. Well, it is. uh, It's easier for taxidermists now. We're ordering the mannequin or the form from supply companies. So when we get those, it's already all the detail is there. Everything is uh, just ready to take the fitted skin. Now, back in the old days, uh, 75 or 100 years ago, they might have used the original skull. The neck was a two by four and they wrapped uh, straw and baling wire around it. And uh, of course, when you see these old mounts nowadays, they're very antique-ish, not something that's really pleasant to look at on the wall. Mm -hmm. Not to be too graphic, but when a hunter walks in your door, what is he handing over for you to mount? Well, there's different mounts you can get. For instance, uh, your deer or your elk, that's usually going to be a shoulder mount. Um, So when they come in, they they have brought the head of the animal with the cape still on. The cape is the skin that's on the face with the neck and the brisket and shoulder area still attached. That's what we need in order to do a shoulder mount. And we will skin that out, or we call it cape it out. We're taking the skin off of the face uh, with like a scalpel. Uh, Very detailed process, but uh, you don't want to put nicks and cuts in it. That's something you would have to end up sewing up later when it comes back from the tannery. Hmm. Your goal is to make the animals come to life. Do you have any trade secrets? No, with uh, internet, you don't have trade secrets anymore. Um, There's so much info out there for, uh, you know, people to learn this now that you don't have to go to school. You don't have to really learn from someone. You can almost, you know, watch things on YouTube or rent a DVD or something. I'm trying to imagine, you know, your supplies of eyeballs, maybe tongues, ears. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, all of the above. I have drawers of eyes. I love to educate people when they uh, come out to my facility. I'll have the hunter come in with his deer and there'll be someone left out in the truck. I said, who's that? Oh, that's my wife. I says, well, bring her in here. My taxidermy shop isn't like anybody else's. It's very clean. It's like a museum almost, probably over 100 mounts on display. But I want this hunter's wife to see the process that goes into it so she's not worried that it's something that's going to smell or get bugs. You know, our capes and hides, those are commercially, professionally tan. So it's like a lady's fur coat. 
So it's it's nothing that's going to smell or, you know, do anything like that. So, What's it like to work surrounded by lots of dead animals? Well, I bring them back to life, so they're not dead <laughs> for long. Are most, most taxidermists hunters or at least people familiar with wild animals and the wild? Yeah, definitely. I've got a lot of friends that are taxidermists and 99.9% are certainly hunters. How did you get into this business? A lot of people don't know a taxidermist. Well, the part of uh, taxidermy, we consider it art. It's not some old redneck sort of thing. We're not wild game processors and skinning deer and things like that. We're doing the art part of it. And uh, this started from early age elementary school. I was either going to be a phys ed teacher or an art teacher. And as I got older, I was liking that taxidermy thing, but I wanted to be a gym teacher. That's what I went off to college to be, and uh, that's what I was for several years back in Virginia. But I was practicing taxidermy at that part, or at that point. So uh, once I had the opportunity to move to uh, Colorado from Virginia, out here in the West is where you want to be a taxidermist. You have all these different animals where back east you might have a deer, turkey, and a black bear. So out here, you have probably 20 big game animals, you know, that we could get in. So there's more to choose from. And um, most of the taxidermists, you know, have an artistic talent that, you know, they're nurturing with this job. Most of them are. Uh, I know some that couldn't draw a stick figure. So, uh, you know, but but if you're an artist and you have that sort of background, that certainly helps you in this field. I imagine some people don't like the idea of glorifying the killing of animals. Do you ever hear from them? Uh, not at my place. <laughs> Maybe somewhere else. But I try to uh, instill in them that, uh, you know, we're not just a bunch of people grab a gun, go out and shoot anything we want. There are regulations that have been set up by biologists and scientists. They're able to determine uh, you know, what a healthy population should be. So that's why they will give out a certain number of hunting license. Um, you know, it is under scientific s- sort of, of view. Um, and things like mountain goats and bighorn sheep, it, it could take years to draw a tag. I mean, you can't just let everybody have a bighorn sheep tag, go out and hunt. They'd kill them all within a few months. So it took me 25 years to draw a bighorn sheep tag. So... Mm-hmm. It's a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing. What's the most interesting hunting story you've heard from a customer? Well, heck, that would be my own. <laughs> What's uh, that? Well, I had killed this huge lion that was, at the time, ranked number five in the world. And this will be 20 years ago, this December 26. And we were trying to pack this big mountain lion out in the snow up on the Grand Mesa. And I got kind of tangled up with the lion. It was dead, but uh, it kind of went off a cliff and drug me over. Uh, So I ended up in the hospital. But uh, the mountain lion is life-size in my living room. So I'm I'm reminded every day that I could have been killed on that hunt or at least maimed, but I'm still alive sitting on my couch and the mountain lion's over in the corner. I'm glad of that. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. Daryl Powell is a taxidermist. The big game hunting season is wrapping up, so it's peak time for those who prepare, stuff, and mount hunted animals. Powell joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Coming up, something new is afloat at an iconic Denver tradition. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. Denver's Holiday Parade of Lights has had the same floats for the last 20 years. But as Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports, this weekend, the wintertime tradition is getting a spark of something new. A purple and blue glow floods out from underneath the garage-style door of a warehouse off of I-25 in the Elyria Swansea neighborhood. Inside, volunteers put last-minute touches on the source of the light. So in the front, we have the ice crystal gazebo, what we kind of like to call it, and it's underlit by really cool LED lighting. Uh, In the middle, where we wanted to be our focal point, obviously, was Ice Palace. That's Ryan Gimeno. He designed this icy, glowing parade float. The castle is 10 feet tall and is built in tiers, sort of like a wedding cake. It's made up of panels of frosted acrylic, so a mix of colored lights can shine through. And then the back here, we have the waterfall that kind of streams down and goes throughout the whole flow and everything with really cool twinkling lights and, and, and also fiber optics to give it a really cool water effect. Jimeno is an apprentice electrician with the independent electrical contractors Rocky Mountain. Mary Beth Armbruster is also with the group. She's the project manager for the float. She says it makes sense for electricians to take part. It is a parade of lights after all. When we contacted them, they said, oh, would you just like to put one of your signs on our floats? We said, no, no, we actually want to make our own float. We took a leap of faith, and I think they, they also did as well, that we could, we could do this. But who better than electricians? At first, the Downtown Denver Partnership told them that's not usually how it works. Groups can walk in the parade, or a business can sponsor one of the 12 floats. But that's when they realized one of the floats still didn't have a sponsor. That float was called Elves and the Shoemaker. That's Kaylin Claren with the Downtown Denver Partnership. It was a smaller float where we had shoes that actually rolled alongside of the float, and there was a pin cushion on the top, so we actually had the whole Elves and the Shoemaker scene. But she says for some reason, it's been harder to get it sponsored. So they scraped it to the float's base and agreed to let the electricians try something new. 43 years is a long standing tradition, but it's good to start new every now and then. The glow from the ice castle creates shadows on the older floats, also stored in the warehouse. If you've been to the parade, they're immediately familiar. There's the giant purple rocking horse and nutcracker, the boat made entirely of twinkle lights, and of course... This is Santa's sleigh right here, with Rudolph leading the charge. And this warehouse is just full of glitter and costumes, imagination. Clarence says it's not just tradition that keeps the floats the same, it's also expensive to make and maintain new ones. This is the first time they've partnered with a group who wanted the challenge. And there were lots of moments Mary Beth Armbruster didn't think they'd get it done. When we came up with the concept of this ice castle. That was great to come up with these great ideas. Then though, to make it a reality, we had to enlist some super skilled people in our industry. And that's what Armbruster wants the float to show, just what an electrician can do. 
The construction industry is desperate for workers, especially in Colorado. And Armbruster hopes this project will help highlight the field. The skilled trades are not as visible. And this is a great way to illuminate, pardon the pun, the skilled trades in a really fun and creative way. As the LED lights of the ice castle move and change colors, Armbruster tells me they'll be synced with music, which was composed by Robert Klimek, a professor at the Colorado School of Mines, just for the float. Ryan Gimeno, the apprentice electrician who designed the float, has two daughters, ages three and five, who can't wait to see it. Every time I show them pictures of it, they are just ecstatic and they always ask, uh, you know, when can we play on it? While his daughters don't get to play on the float, dad does. Gimeno gets to be the ice prince along with an ice princess with lights sewn into their costumes. For them to ask me, it was pretty cool. You know, it's a pretty nice surprise and, uh, you know, it's going to be something that's going to be great to share with my daughters. Seeing as the other floats have been in the parade for decades, it's likely he'll share this with them for years to come. A new tradition. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. To see pictures of the floats for the Parade of Lights, both new and old, go to CPR.org. That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.